All right, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab that. And we're going to begin looking at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. So Genesis 2, 18, and you can go ahead and start turning there. Again, let me add my welcome to you. Welcome to Vaughn Forest. It just feels like this is, uh, feels like everything is getting going again. I know that uh, school picked up this past week. And so, you know, as as this season approaches, um, but I just want to say welcome. And I'm glad that you're here. You could have been doing anything. You could have gone anywhere this morning, but you chose to come and worship with us. And I'm so glad that you have. My name is Brett, and I'm honored to have the opportunity again to do this, uh, to open God's word for, uh, for us this morning. And I want to let you know that uh, even though it's been a few months since I've been here, I've so looked forward to this Sunday and the Sundays we'll get to spend together. And I am, I'm humbled and I'm honored uh, that I'm going to have this chance to serve this church uh, during this season and in this way. So again, like you saw, uh, we're in a series that started last week called Game Plan. And here's what happens, because, uh, you know, even though you have a date circled on a calendar, you know that something's coming up, like uh, sending your children back to school, or you're looking forward to uh, a new start, or a new job, or a new move, or a new place. It seems like, even though you can know that that date is coming, and it might be looming for some of you even sitting here today, it seems like everything takes a long time, there's a long buildup, and then all of a sudden, things start happening very fast. And before you know it, you're in the middle of it, and you're not exactly sure what to do. The idea behind these weeks is to say, what if you decided to take a different approach to some of the most important categories in your life? What if instead of reacting and just trying to make it through, what if there was something you could do in advance to prepare yourself, prepare your family, prepare the people that you lead to not just make it through, but to make a difference? So last week, uh, we started our series looking at the church and how really the church is God's plan for redeeming everything. The church is God's plan for redeeming the world. And this week, we're going to talk about another uh, very uh, important, it's a huge category. And as soon as I say the word, I'm going to have to give some disclaimers and then pull you back in, all right? So just hang with me. But today we're talking about marriage. Now, before you go there, uh, because some of you in the room, that word carries with it a lot of weight and uh, maybe even a lot of uh, baggage. But what we're doing through these weeks is we are seeking wisdom from God. But when we talk about marriage and we talk about God's wisdom for it, um, that can become an emotional subject, maybe even bring up or stir up some feelings that you don't want to deal with. So here's what I want to do. Just out in front to make sure we're all on the same page, to make sure that you're with me this morning, um, I'm going to ask you some questions to maybe just level the playing field and make sure we're all in this together. Now, just so you know that whenever whenever we do this and it's like, uh, you know, crowd participation time and no one engages, it is such a bummer, okay? So we're all going to play, we're all going to go in, and it's going to be great. So first, let me ask the ladies in the room, all right? Ladies first, let me talk to you. How many of you, when you were young, uh, and or maybe you are young, and then there's nobody in the room who's not young, right? But how many of you remember growing up, and uh, maybe you had this thought, you had this fantasy, maybe you currently still have this fantasy, but you dreamt and, and hoped and maybe even prayed about the perfect wedding day. 
You remember that wedding day. You were just, you began to think about it from the moment you were a little girl. You had in your head, you had in your head this game plan about this perfect guy at the end of the perfect aisle in his perfect outfit in front of all of your friends and family and everyone was there. And you imagine that you and your future husband would have the perfect relationship and that you would have the perfect kids and that your house would be so beautiful that every single corner was worthy of an Instagram photo and, and, and comment, that you'd have the perfect idea of the white picket fence and the always, uh, the always manicured lawn, and maybe even there was a hypoallergenic dog in the corner, I don't know, but just endless everyday bliss where every single night you fell asleep just talking. <laughs> that was your, now, for how many of you, that's not exact, no, I'm not going to do that, okay, so, uh, but now, let me talk to the guys. Let me talk to the guys, because here's what I know as one of us, as our representative for today. You had a completely different fantasy as a teenager. I know you. I know that you, when you thought of your wedding day or your marriage, you thought of something completely different altogether. You pictured lifelong every day, every night, physical intimacy, and that was a non-negotiable. You pictured dinner on the table, you thought of all the free time that you were gonna have, and that your wife was gonna be so excited and bless you on your way out the door as you went to hunt or fish or play golf, and would never call you and say, when you coming home? Like that would never happen, but just for all of us in the room, how many of us would, would maybe say this? And we can all confess, because I'm not gonna point out anybody, I'm just gonna raise my hand and say, I'm one of us. But how many of us could say that the picture or the idea or the game plan we had about our marriage relationship is just different from the reality that we find ourselves in. Not good, not bad, just different. Anybody else besides me in the room? Yeah, a lot of us, and that's okay. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to see that, and this is, I think is very interesting, the Bible actually has a lot to say about marriage and about the marriage relationship. In fact, I would say the way we read the Bible is like this, that the Bible begins with a wedding. The Bible starts with a wedding in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve, and the Bible actually ends with a marriage in the new heavens between Jesus and his church. So in a very real sense, what the Bible is a story of is it's a story that begins with a wedding and ends with a marriage. So I hope that you found Genesis 2 by now. Let me begin reading for us in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. 
out of something not good. Out of something not good. Out of something that did not please the Lord. It wasn't perfect. Out of something not good, God creates something very good. This is how the Bible begins. And I wonder if you're here today and when you think about your marriage or when you think about marriage in general, I wonder if some of these thoughts like these come to your mind. I wonder if you think, why can't someday be today? I wonder why is it taking so long? I wonder if the person who I said yes to and they said yes to me, I wonder if they're having second thoughts too. Maybe you're thinking, what was I thinking? Or maybe you wonder, can this, can this relationship ever grow? Can it ever change? Can this survive? Can this heal? And I want you to know that the framework that God sets down for us to understand marriage in order for us to understand, God says, let me make it clear. This is God saying to you, I am not denying the existence of pain. God does not deny the existence of pain, but God understands reality. And the reality is this, God always works the same way. God always works his plan the exact same way, that out of something not good, God can and does and will create something very good. That's how God works. And this, what we just read, is how the scriptures explain the meaning of marriage. God helps us. He unveils to us so that we can see we live in a world and a universe where the ultimate reality, what all of us were created at our innermost being to crave is relationship. The ultimate reality we live in is relational. So why did God make Eve? Why did God give Adam a wife? To help him. The scriptures say God created a helper for him. But this word helper is interesting because it is far from meaning inferior. This word helper does not mean subservient. In fact, this word helper is used to describe uh, God as the same word that's used to describe Eve. We see this word all over the Old and New Testament. Look at uh, these verses. This is amazing. Psalm 54, four, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Or Psalm 121, one and two, I lift up my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And in Exodus 18, four, Moses spoke of God as his helper who delivered him from Pharaoh. And Eve is described as a helper that corresponds to him. And that phrase what it asserts, what it tells us is that the woman and man were of equal worth. She is fit for him. That is corresponding to him. She's on his level. They see eye to eye. Why? Because they both equally bear the divine image. They equally bear a resemblance to God. 
This woman that God has given to Adam as his wife, she is not his property. She is not his prize, or she is not even yet the mother of his children. This woman matters. This bride matters. And she matters in her own right. She matters because she is Adam's unique counterpart. And every single bride in the room, every single wife in the room, you matter in your own right as your husband's unique counterpart. You are the only person in all of creation and in all of history that corresponds to your husband. You are fit together. God has given you one another. And the man and the woman, they need and they mutually benefit from each other. But Adam, as we pick up the story, uh, Adam, I'm not sure, even knows he's alone yet. Adam is busy. Uh, he doesn't sense, really, that he's missing out on anything. Remember, it's not Adam that declares the state of things as not good. It was God who said that. But um, before Adam even knows he's alone, God is up to, he's up to something. God is working behind the scenes. And how does God do this? God does this by giving him a seemingly arbitrary task. God says to Adam, name all the animals. So Adam goes, okay. And there's Adam doing exactly, obediently what God had asked him to do. And he's not yet knowing that he's feeling alone, but he knows that something isn't right. He's working his way through this first parade of every animal that passes by. And so he sees the animal, it passes by, he names it, that's what it is, that's what it does. And we don't know why, and this is speculation, but you have to think that at some point, he keeps seeing animals and going, that's not like me, that's not like me, that's not like me. The job that God gives Adam of naming every animal is how God alerts the man to his isolation. Amid the beauty and the plenty of an otherwise perfect world, Adam begins to realize, it dawns on him, I'm the only one that's like me. In fact, verse 20 can literally be translated, but as for Adam, he did not find a helper fit for him. And so now he feels his isolation. And now he's prepared. Now he's ready for the greatest gift under God he will ever receive, greater than all of creation itself. And I wonder, in fact, I have a sneaking suspicion that you're here, that you feel like that is the perfect description for this stage of your life. You might feel like that. You might be willing to go, you know what, that's me. Because life feels just as arbitrary as Adam's. You might feel like today and that this space of your life actually only deepens your feelings of isolation and your loneliness. And you might think I came to church just so that I could feel worse about myself and about the state of things and wonder how many times am I going to go to church and listen to a marriage sermon without a ring on my finger, without being where I wanted to be. May I submit to you that I think you're here today for a completely other reason. I think you're here today to be reminded that there is no wasted season under the on-time providing hand of God. 
He does not waste seasons and God does not waste your time. And so Adam does not waste his time, but he's being prepared. And after he's prepared, he is exhausted. You would be too. Exhausted by naming every single animal, God then causes Adam to fall asleep. And Adam falls asleep having no idea what was about to happen the next morning. At night, God opens his side. He takes out a rib. He gently closes it up. And from this rib, he creates woman from Adam's side. Matthew Henry was a commentator, and he said about this section of Scripture years ago, he said, uh, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And he wakes up, and there she is. There's Eve, the first woman, holy, pure, lovely, and dear to God. And then, like a father of the bride, like so many of your fathers did, and like so many of you fathers are going to do someday, God brought her to the man. And for the man, Oh, it's love at first sight. And in verse 23, we get to hear what Adam says. We get to hear his rejoicing over the woman. He says these words. At last. At last. And these words are the first recorded spoken words in human history. And the first recorded words are a song of praise. Adam is praising his creator God for giving him this gift of his wife. But these words are not just the first recorded ones spoken. They're the first recorded ones ever heard. The first words that the female ear ever hear is the sound of her husband rejoicing that she's there. What does that mean? It means that you can never and you should not underestimate the profound impact of thanking God for your spouse and letting them know. No one has ever been told too many times, I'm so grateful for you. You can never underestimate that. Then something happens because the author of this text is, it's fantastic. Moses does something incredible. Moses has been telling the story. In fact, it's almost as if he's, uh, he's doing this sort of, uh, like he's standing at a canvas and he's got his palette and he's got his brush and he's telling a story. He's actually drawing it out and he's, he's allowing the audience and he's allowing the readers and he's allowing you and I to see that at first there was this huge parade of animals and then God gives Adam a job and then God puts Adam to sleep and he creates woman and then he brings them together and they're so happy to see each other and what Moses is doing is he t he's telling a story about what has happened but then something incredible happens. It's almost as if Moses changes his perspective and he's slowly rotates around to the audience and says, now, let me tell you why all this matters. He goes from telling the story about what happened in the Garden of Eden to looking at you and me and saying this, this is 
why. This is why this matters. And I have to say that I, I love doing what I do. I love the Bible, I love teaching the Bible, but one of my favorite parts of what I do is that I get to marry people and I think it's the best. I love weddings, I love going to weddings, I love performing weddings, and there's so many parts of the marriage ceremony that you have got to get right because there's usually a video and people will remember, okay? You have to get, you have to get the names right, okay? You gotta make sure, you've gotta write it on your heart that you're going to remember these people's names. You have got to get the rings right, you've gotta get the vows right, you've gotta get all the different pieces going in the wedding and making sure everything is flowing, but one of my favorite parts of every wedding ceremony that every pastor has participated in is that at some point, the husband and wife are declared married in the presence of God. They're reminded that what you're doing is not a secret. And it's not just the people in the audience that are getting a chance to hear what you're saying, but you're doing it before the Lord. What I think about what I truly believe is that if you're married and you believe your marriage matters, that your first role, your first responsibility is not as a husband or as a wife. Your first role is to be a Jesus follower, that you are to pursue the presence of God. Pursue the presence of God. Are you? Fair question for church. Are you experiencing the reality-altering, intimate, authentic effect that God has on your life? And the reason I ask that question is because only God can give you that. Only the presence of God can give you a full, reality-changing experience only God can provide what you so desperately need, and that's joy and satisfaction and a feeling of self-worth. What do I mean? I mean that if you're looking for that somewhere else, if you're looking at that in someone else, if you're placing the expectation on your husband or your wife to provide your sense of self-worth, to provide your sense of security, to give you happiness, to give you fulfillment, you are placing on them a weight that they were not created to carry. They were not, their shoulders were not made for that. The reason I know that is because that's an illusion. That's a story that you told yourself or somebody told you, and I need to tell you that that is not true. It is an illusion. It's made up. It's an illusion that if we can find our one true soulmate, if we can find our one true love, that everything wrong with us will be healed. And that you need to know and have somebody be honest with you and tell you, no human being can live up to that. No one can. 1 Peter 5, 7 tells us to cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. 
But when you think about your marriage, some of you, in the, some of us, I have, I have felt this way. Some of you think your husband or your wife is not doing enough. And if you think that, I'd submit to you that you are probably asking them to fill a role that only God can in your life. And the reason you believe that story and the reason you believe that illusion is because nothing is more natural in our culture, fallen world, nothing is more natural than trying to build a happy marriage on God avoidance. Everyone wants a happy marriage. No one stands at the altar or in the barn or wherever people get married today. No one stands in front of their friends in the presence of God and says, I hope this is a disaster. I can't wait for us to break up. Nobody goes into it with that expectation. And it's all over our, we love weddings. We watch weddings. There's like weddings on television. You don't go to work because you want to watch the royal wedding. I don't know. But like we love weddings. We want a happy marriage. But every single marriage you see in culture, most of the time is built on a rhythm of avoiding God at all costs. That cannot work. Because without peace with God, you inevitably shatter the peace that you desire with somebody else. What I'm saying is that you can give your problems to God or you can give them to your spouse. And that is the choice that you alone have to make every single day. You can give your problems to God or you can give them to your spouse and say, you solve this, you fix this. Translation, here's what I'm telling you. If you don't give your problems to God, you're, you're predicting problems in your marriage. You're forecasting trouble. So you have to pursue that presence of God. Follow Jesus, actually follow him. But not just that, pursue presence with one another. Pursue presence with each other, be around, be with each other. You have to continually chase after each other, not just be around. I know that you want more for your marriage than to just have somebody else help you get your kids where they need to go. I know what you want more from your marriage than just a co-contributor to the account or somebody that helps you feel safe because there's another human in the house at night. You want more. You deserve more. And you have to pursue presence with each other because there will come a day that the person you promised to love, you vowed to love in sickness and in health, there will come a day when they get sick. There will come a day when the person that you vowed to love for richer or for poorer, he's gonna lose his job. She's gonna get let go. There is going to come a day when every single reason that sent you down the aisle is going to feel like it's a million miles away. And you know what that makes you? If that's, if that's you, if that's ever happened to you, if that describes the current state or the former state of your marriage, do you know what that makes you? It makes you a married person. It makes you similar to everyone else who's ever done this. And when that day comes, you have to remember that the essence of marriage, the foundation of marriage is that marriage is a covenant. It is a commitment. Marriage is a promise of not just how you used to feel or how you feel on your wedding day. Marriage is a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender or sympathetic or eager to please, but in your actions, 
you have got to be tender and you have to be understanding. You must be forgiving and you must be helpful. And if you do that, not only will you make it through the hard times and the dry spells, I think you'll actually find that the dry spells and the hard times become less frequent and that the feelings of intimacy and actually having pursued one another, that those become more often than not the common experience. The reason I know that happens is because action precedes feeling. Faith comes after action, not before. And falling in love, here's what it means. Falling in love means this. Pastor Scott Saul says this. It means seeing the person in front of you as an incomplete work in progress who will one day be made complete. A flawed sinner who will one day be made a saint. If you are married to a Christian, one day they will be perfect. What does it mean to be present with one another? It doesn't mean extended minutes of unbroken eye contact because that's odd. What does it mean to be present with one another? It doesn't mean that every single night you have to fall asleep holding hands, quoting Psalms. It doesn't mean never missing a date night. What does it mean to be present with one another? I think it means taking the time to notice what God's up to. And not just around, and not just in the house, but noticing what God's up to in them. That's how you pursue each other. And then you get to do the greatest thing. You get to present your presence to the world. Isn't it interesting? What if marriage, and I mean yours, what if marriage was more than just about making you happy? What if God had a reason for you to be married that had something to do with the world that you lived in, not just the house. Here's what I think. The day and age we live, the time that God has trusted to us, our culture, the way we do marriage as Christians, that is the best way. It's one of the best ways to share the gospel with our world. It's one of the best ways. Here's what I mean. Uh, in verse 25, the last few words describe the intimate union between Adam and Eve, man and wife. They were together, they were naked, they were vulnerable, and yet they felt no shame. I wonder if you were to think about the behaviors in your spouse and your husband, your wife, I wonder if you think about the ones that you like the least. Because chances are the reason you like them the least is because they hurt you the most. And the behaviors like lying and exaggeration, avoidance, and just shutting down. You know what, those behaviors, those have roots. And the roots of those behaviors, they find their root in feelings like guilt and anxiety and regret and rejection. So the behaviors that you like the least because they hurt the most, they actually come from somewhere. They come from feelings that come from experience. 
But those feelings aren't the end of the story. Those feelings are the result of one thing, shame. We feel shame. And the reason we feel shame is because we're not who we want to be. We're not who we thought we'd be by now, and we are not who we present to the world. What am I saying? In our world, every single person is walking around. There's no one exempt from this. Dealing with pain, anxiety, guilt, depression, something like that. Is there a better invitation that you could ever give to someone than to say, I'm inviting you into a life that's free from shame? You know, in our world, uh, value is directly associated with need. I completely understand this. I have, uh, in my house, I have a wife and I have two daughters, and so I'm the only guy. We had a fish once, she was a girl, okay? So everyone in my house is a female. And um, I'm needed, and I love it. (laughs) I love being needed. I love being able to fix the air conditioner. I love being the one who kills the spider. I love being the one who knows where the hairbrush is. Like, I love being needed. I love knowing the answer. I love saving the day. I love, the reason I like that though, don't tell them. It's because I, I associate my importance with how much I'm needed. Because in our world, it's how it works. The more you're needed, the more that you can come in and save the day, the more that you can come in and close the deal, the more that you can come in and fix everything, the more that you are needed, the more that you are valued. And when you're needed by someone, that makes you feel important. Feels nice. But that's an error. Because when we do that, when we take this need-based approach living and you place that on the person that you have vowed to love as long as you both shall live, you're gonna crush him. Here's what I think our culture needs. Our culture, what it needs most is not people who get married to get their needs met, but people who live to serve and meet the needs of one another. In other words, marriage done God's way is a you first kind of relationship. And the way we read the Bible is with a wedding at the beginning and a marriage at the end. You could say, I think, that Adam and Eve are a shadow picture of Christ and the church. They fell in love in the presence of God. They came together, they were completely themselves. There was no pretending, no posturing, no worry and no shame. And you know what? That's what we're invited into. That's what all of us are invited into. We're invited into a relationship with Jesus. We're invited into the presence of God where we can fall in love and stand with Jesus. All that we are, And when we stand with him, we don't have to pretend. We don't have to posture. We don't have to make ourselves look better than the truth. We don't have to be afraid. And Jesus is gathering and he is calling and he is inviting you to be his bride. He's inviting you to fall in love with him in the presence of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that that's how you have chosen for us to know you. And I wonder right now as we're praying, if you are 
comfortable doing so, if you're sitting next to your husband or your wife, would you reach over and, and grab their hand? Would you hold hands? And I wonder if you would be brave enough to think, I, one of those places is something where I, I, needed, I needed to hear that because I need to lean into that a little more. What is that for you? Is it time to say, all right, I, I, I am a Christian. I affirm that Jesus is Lord, but pursuing him on a consistent basis, that's hard for me. That's hard for us. And because I don't, that makes it hard on us. My resisting to pursuing Jesus, me not wanting to be an actual Jesus follower, makes life for the person whose hand I'm holding harder and worse. Would you ask God for help? Or maybe it's been a minute since you've even done this. It's been a while since you've held hands. Whatever the reason. I don't deal in guilt in this way, but it's been a minute. Are you pursuing each other? Are you, are you taking time to notice what God's up to? And maybe a good question to ask, maybe on the drive home, maybe at lunch. What, is, what does our neighborhood see when they, they see us being married? What does our family see when they see us being husband and wife? What kind of picture of Jesus in the church are we projecting to the world? If any of those are, are hard or if any of those are, are places of not guilt, but conviction, gentle conviction from the Holy Spirit, would you ask God to help you? And then later on, be honest with somebody else. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help in Jesus' name that you would attach your word to our hearts. It's in your name that we pray.